Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Icy hot starts working instantly to dull the pain with the icy cool sensation. Then the warming sensation relaxes it away. Feel the power of Icy Hot's contrast therapy. Ice works fast, heat makes it last. Icy Hot. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. We live in a world in which we tiptoe along a thin line between free will and selfishness, between self-determination and narcissism, between empathy and righteousness. Underpinning everything are these crucial questions. Who am I as an individual? And who am I as a member of a group and society? When did we begin to be as selfish as we are today? At what point did we expect to have the right to determine our own lives? When did we think it was our right to take what we wanted? Where did this us, you, me, or our collective behavior all come from? And when did we first ask the question, how can I be free? So Tom Holland, these are questions that I imagine you ask yourself all the time. Every day, I leap out of bed asking those questions. They're the questions posed in a preface to a wonderful new book, which we'll come to in just a second. But people often say, don't they, that we live in an age of unparalleled narcissism. And um, people often like to trace this back to the ideals of philosophers and writers and people who argued about the self and the individual and the kind of romantic ideal of the the poet in his garret or staring out over a mountain. I mean, this is very much, not only is it your kind of territory, because you love Lord Byron, who you believe to have been a vampire, but also... <laughs> but also, Tom, I mean, that's very much doing what you want, isn't it? You are very much this sort of person, aren't you? I see you as a rugged individual staring out over great mountain ranges, oh, contemplating there. That is so kind. I, I mean, it's pejoratively. So that's poor behaviour by your reckoning? Well, I'm Samuel Johnson kicking a stone. You Famously, are. he kicked a stone and uh, refuted Bishop Barclay's theory of yes. immaterialism. So, um, so you mentioned Byron, but of course, um, actually, I mean, this is very German behavior. It is German. Because the, the, the idea of romanticism, the very word romantic in the way that we use it today, uh, originates with a, a group of German philosophers in um, the university town of Jena, basically in the 1790s. And it's the argument of my dear friend, Andrea Wolff, 
uh, who award-winning historian, um, and despite being German, writes brilliant, brilliant English. <laughs> despite being German. Tom, what an introduction. Um, and her latest book is Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. Um, and Andrea, when you told me about this, it uh, must have been three, four years ago, that you were planning to write a book about a bunch of philosophers in the university town of Jena. I thought that was a brave choice. <laughs> Because um, Dominic, I mean Dominic, as as a kind of John Bull figure, what is your attitude towards German idealist philosophers? Do you do you read them regularly? Are you a fan of them? Do you curl up with shelling of an evening? Yeah, I mean when I'm on the train on the way to Molyneux on a Saturday, Tom, I've often got a volume of Fichte <laughs> with me, uh, reading a bit of Hegel. Um, absolutely. No, I mean I think I think what is absolutely fascinating, Tom, is that. Um, uh, is that this is a world so unknown to English-speaking readers. So in other words, we're in 18th century Germany. So Germany has not been unified yet. We are, as you say, in the era of the French Revolution. And we are talking about uh, one of the, you know, the most advanced, most sort of civilized, most enlightened, as it were, um, parts of Europe. And all these people who for many years, actually, in Britain, were seen as absolute paragons and models. Well, and direct influences on the Romantic movement here. Yeah, and have since disappeared, haven't they? I think partly because of the because of the World Wars, Tom. They've sort of been airbrushed out. But anyway, go, tell me about well, Coleridge. Well, so Coleridge goes to study there and basically plagiarizes vast chunks of of philosophy from all the from Schelling in particular, this 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 philosopher. And that has a huge influence on English Romanticism. Um so the English Romantics, the French Romantics, all American Romantics, all absolutely in debt to this. And Andrea, you in your introduction, you say, I mean, you express the significance of this decade, the 1790s in Jena, in very, very kind of vaunting terms, a mere blink in time, yet one of the most important decades for the shaping of the modern mind. And it has to be said that you conclusively, I think, make that case. And not only do you make that case, but you make it in an incredibly entertaining style, because although you know, the philosophy is incredibly important, as you, you you demonstrate. I mean, they are, they're such a bunch. They're endlessly marrying with each other, falling, <laughs> falling out of each other's beds, having spats. Uh, I mean, it, you've written it almost as a kind of soap opera, verging at points into a sitcom. Yeah, well, you know, when if the thing is, if you write about philosophy, you need to kind of lighten it up a little bit. And and I, and I, I also think the problem is we see philosophy or philosophers through their works, but obviously they were people, and um, their philosophy was a philosophy of the self. So they kind of used their own lives as a platform to try this all out. So they became quite egotistical also. So it's it's a book about big big ideas about the beginning of the modern self, but it is also a soap opera with lots of sex and rock and roll and fun and you know and we because because we have thousands and thousands of letters and these are all poets so they write really well and really gossipy so because we have these letters you can actually you can enter the rooms with them you can enter the bedroom with them i mean one of them wrote an uh, erotic autobiographical novel where he basically invites the readers to watch him and his lover make love and quite explicit erotic details so so they're they're philosophers but they're also very flawed human beings well you 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 quote Novalis who is the kind of the prototype of the doomed romantic poet um great poet who dies young age of 29 I think so the prototype for Keats and Shelley and all that kind of thing um and and you quote from his diary um in which he is endlessly recording his um sexual moods and his wanking and all kinds of stuff which he frames as um 
lewdness raged from morning into the afternoon. So I know, but then you, if you go on, there's one where the, the lewd fantasy in the morning leads to an explosion in the afternoon. Oh, my word. <laughs> yes. So, as, so, so, so this is a very much a, a collection of people um, who are not just doing philosophy, I think. So let's put them, um, Andrea, in place and in time. So we are at the end of the 18th century and we are in a place called Jena. There was a battle of Jena, which we might come to later. But first of all, so where is Jena and why should we be interested in it? So maybe I should start with Germany, just to explain a little bit where Jena is, because Jena is in Germany. So as you said in your introduction, Germany at the end of the 18th century is not a unified nation. It's a patchwork of 1500 states ranging from tiny principalities to big, you know, mighty states like Prussia and Austria. And and Jena is in the Duchy of Saxe Weimar, which is in the middle of it. Um, but the unintended uh, advantage of this fragmentation is that censorship is basically very difficult to enforce in these little states because every state has a different set of rules. So very unlike century ruled countries like England or France. And France, England, Spain have also big, you know, they're big global monarchies, powerful monarchies with a global reach through their colonies. And in Germany, everything is inward looking and splintered. So the German imagination really has to, is fed by words and by, um, by, by, by books. And Germans are fanatical readers. So the literacy rates in Germany are much higher than elsewhere. So Saxony and Prussia actually lead the world at the end of the 18th century. There are more universities I was, I mean, I was really startled to read in your, and, and a little bit embarrassed on behalf of England, I'm afraid to say, um, that the, the German book trade in was, was four to five times larger than that in England, which isn't at all the impression that, that one would get from, you know, reading about Grub Street in London or something. Yeah. And, and everybody read in Germany. I mean, it, it, we can, you cannot underestimate how many people read in Germany. So, and you have 50 universities compared to two universities in England. So ideas and arguments traveled quite easily through the German states. But then the question is why Jena? So Jena is this small town, four and a half thousand um, inhabitants. It's a university town. It's tiny. So it takes like less than 10 minutes to cross. It's um, headed by a pretty enlightened um, ruler who encourages a certain degree of openness and, um, and frankness. And but the real reason why there's more freedom in Jena and why it attracts more liberally minded people um, than anywhere else in Germany is the governance of the university through which once belonged to Saxony, but through complicated inheritance laws, basically nominally kind of controlled by four different Saxon dukes. No one is in charge. So what happens is every writer, every thinker who has you know problems with the authorities in their hometowns ends up in Jena. So it becomes this very transient place of very revolutionary minds. And I mean, one for me, one great example was that it's so transient that you have a staggering amount of 25%, a quarter of all children born in Jena at the time of the Jena set are born out of wedlock. So there's a lot of sex going on there. Right, right. And, and it's a very kind of small, intimate place, isn't it? Um, yes, and, and you say again and again throughout the book that it's a place that's too small for gossip. So essentially, it, when people start sleeping with one another or bitching about them behind their backs, it always gets back to them. And so it's ideally suited to the swirl and drama of soap opera. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you have, and I think because it's so small, I mean, people walk from, you know, say from their house to the library and they cross the market town and they will meet everybody there. So there's no way you can hide um, that you're sleeping with someone. And then, I mean, the thing is actually they don't want to hide it. So there are, there are quite a lot of open marriages. So you have, for example, um, Wilhelm von Humboldt and his wife who, their lover lives, her lover lives with the Humboldts in their house and goes very openly to all their kind of social activities. Or the, the Schlegel, Caroline Schlegel and August Wilhelm Schlegel, they have an open marriage. Um, she, and she's quite a character. We can talk about her later. So, so it's very open and no one really seems to mind. And I think also we sometimes forget it's the Victorians who made it all so kind of yeah. rigid. The 18th century was quite, um, open-minded about stuff like that so let's let's talk about the big figure um so the big figure who who is the sort of godfather if you like so he's from a slightly older generation he is the one german writer i would guess that most of the listeners to this podcast will have heard of that can be guaranteed to have heard of even if you haven't read his stuff and that is johann wolfgang von goethe so goethe whose book the sorrows of young werther had been the great kind of hit I guess, of the, what, 1770s? Yes. And he doesn't live in Jena, but he comes and visits and he is the sort of, he's the big man, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, so, so Goethe is the literary superstar in Germany. I mean, he was catapulted to international fame through his novel, uh, The Sorrows of, of Young Werther, which was a, which is a novel about a lovelorn, um, man who commits suicide and who, talking about Byron, there's a uh, Byron later jokes to Goethe that, Werther um, encouraged a kind of wave of suicides. And, and Byron said to Goethe that um, Werther has killed more young men than Napoleon. So um, <laughs> they, I mean, it, people, young men would run around in the Werther costume, in a Werther uniform. So Goethe writes this as a young man. And then when in the 1790s, when the Jena set kind of happens, he's, he's older, he's in his mid 40s. And mean, fatter. Yeah, he has a very bu- <laughs> bulging belly, which he buttons in with like stripy and flowery waist. <laughs> so not so very that... young Verta. He's, no, so he's like Bil- no. He reminds me of Bilbo Baggins, oddly, Tom. Yes, the, uh, yes, the bulging belly. He's a great belly. fan of uh, coloured waistcoats. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, so, a ludicrous um, excursion. Sorry, Andrea. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so, but, so by the time the Yenaset arrives, he's very much part of the government of the small duchy of saxe weimar he is the he's the privy councillor so that's where the von comes from so he's been raised to the aristocracy exactly exactly and he's in charge of the mines and the theater so he's he's very much part of the establishment and um but he's also failed to produce anything remarkable for quite a few years he's he's very depressed about the political situation about the french um wars and he focuses on scientific experiments. He's really into botany and um, comparative um, anatomy. So he he dissects like frogs and caterpillars and everything. So he's he's feeling not great in the in the mid 1790s. And then in 1794, he bumps after a botanical um, lecture, he bumps into Jena's most famous inhabitant, Friedrich Schiller, who is Germany's most play, famous playwright. He was um, he became famous through his revolutionary play, The Robbers. So they start talking with each other, and it becomes really the the most extraordinary literary friendship in Germany. These two are very very different. So Schiller, for example, is 
this tall, gaunt, perpetually ill man who can only write when he has a drawer full of rotten apples in his in his desk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that is such an odd <laughs> behaviour. Yeah, it is, isn't it? He is. He keeps very erratic hours, work hours, because he is an insomniac. He's ill, and so he's he's this very tense person. And Goethe is this kind of rosy cheek, kind of you know. Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. Tom, did you not read this section, Finding It Uncanny? The tall, gaunt, hypochondriac Schiller. Tall, thin, almost gaunt, with reddish long hair and pale blotchy skin. His face was dominated by a large nose and protruding cheekbones. He looked as ill as he felt. And he's always wittering on about no. cricket. He can't sleep in the middle of the night because no. worried where the ne- words for his next book are going to come. And then Goethe, in many ways the greater man, Goethe, who is... Uh, the man who's sold out, who's taken yeah, the... Uh, sort of a stouter figure, admittedly, and shorter. <laughs> but, I mean, did you not find that uncanny? Yeah, I think very, that is... That very, is yes, <laughs> very weird, very weird. Um, parking Dominic's ludicrous comparison on one side. Um, Schiller also has uh, behaved quite badly, hasn't he, romantically, because while he's courting his wife, he's also courting uh, her sister. So very Byronic behaviour, Tom. Very Byronic. Just a, just a little, just a little bit. But then they have a quite conventional marriage, actually. Um, when he, when he, when he finally decides who of the sisters he's getting married to, but so they, so they are very, very different. So one is like a, you know, Goethe describes himself as a, like a hard-headed realist and yes, who likes his experiments <laughs> and his observations, loves his science, Dominic. <laughs> well, okay, I don't like science. <laughs> and then you have Schiller, who describes himself as an idealist, who's someone who believes that idea ideas and the mind constitute reality, not um, not matter. So those two men come together and they begin to work together. So they edit each other's work, they um, they encourage each other, and they produce they both enter one of their most productive phases in their lives and they both of them produce some of their greatest work at this time. So they I've kind of cast them because they're older, I've cast them as the almost like a frame to the story because then the younger generation, the kind of hot-headed, crazy younger generation arrives. And amazingly, Goethe is absolutely invigorated by their kind of radical and mad ideas. And they, in turn, just put him on a pedestal. He becomes like their demigod. So like their kind of stern and benevolent Godfather. So whenever they're in trouble, he tries to mediate. So they fall out eventually with Schiller. And he again and again tries to, you know, keep everybody happy, basically. Yeah. So there, yeah. there's this, there's this sense of youth arrive, arriving in Jena and this kind of old man, you know, 44, not very old in our days, but then old yeah. man feels completely rejuvenated and begins because Weimar is only 15 miles away from Jena and he begins to spend more and more time in Jena. Sometimes, I mean, weeks and months on end, sometimes he spends more time in Jena than he's actually in Weimar because he's away from the court. He's away from, you know, his court duties. So he can be free in Jena. It's very, very different to Weimar. And do you think he feels invigorated, reinvigorated by being surrounded by all these young people having brilliant novel ideas? Yeah, I think his most famous work is Faust. And he had completely got, I mean, he was stuck. He didn't write, he hadn't, he'd stopped writing it. And then this kind of gang arrives and he feels so kind of alive again. And he unpacks Faust again and he kind of writes it. And, you know, the Faust we see today is the Faust he wrote, or large parts, large chunk he wrote during the time of the Yena set. You talk about the, the arrival of this kind of gang of uh, young guns. Um, could we look at some of them 
So who would you say is the most significant in terms of kind of lighting the touch paper with this? It would be Fichte. I'm sorry to say we're going to have to talk about philosopher now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's quite a character though, isn't he? So he's Johann Gottlieb Fichte, that's his name? Yeah, he's Johann Johann Gottlieb Fichte and he was quite a character. So you have to imagine this guy. So he's, he's more bull than a racehorse. He's quite kind of sturdily built and muscular and he gives his lectures um in his riding boots with spurs and whip in hand and he is feared for his volatile temperament and does he use the whip i mean is he using it as a prop or is he kind of you know people fall asleep he lashes them or what's going on i have i have not i have not read anything so i i think it was just like he would just come in yeah a prop but he's so he there's nothing gentle about fichte at all so he thunders, he shouts, he insults, he stomps rather than walks, he eats his snuff tobacco rather than inhaling it. I mean, it's just like this. That is another weird, (laughs) very weird detail. So so he's, and he's, he's so popular. His his students call him the Bonaparte of philosophy because he revolutionized the way we think about us. And he's so popular that his auditorium is packed, the students are standing on ladders, looking through the window. I mean, Half of the students of Jena come to his lectures because what he does is, so at a time when Europe is held, most of Europe is held in the iron fist of absolutism, Fichte imbues the self with the most thrilling of all powers, with free will and self-determination. So that might not sound so exciting for us because we are so used to kind of seeing the world through the prism of our own self, but it was such a revolutionary idea then. And so he says, basically, there are no God-given truth. You know, everything that we know, the only certainty is that the world is experienced through the self. And he says, the self posits its own being, which means the self basically brings itself into existence. And not only that, through this initial powerful act, it also brings the external world into existence, at least in our mind. So It doesn't bring the world, it doesn't create the world, but it creates our knowledge of the external world. And that changes everything. That is the beginning of the modern self, because what he does is his ideas, as simple as it is radical, it says that the self is the supreme ruler of the world. So the self, not kings or queens or gods, rule this world. It's us. It's our mind. And that is just i mean that's an explosive ideas which yeah. is really difficult to understand now but it was mind-blowing i mean everybody like people students from all over europe came to jena to study under fichte i mean there's a kind of unrepentant individualism absolutely unrepentant individualism to it isn't there my my will alone shall float audaciously and boldly over the wreckage of the universe <laughs> so i mean if you were being harsh is fichte the kind of father of modern narcissism is that too, am I being too too Daily Mail about it? Well, yes or no. So it, it has been used like this, but it was never, he never intended a narcissistic celebration of the self at all. It, quite the opposite. So what, what Fichte said was that freedom is always closely interwoven with our moral obligations. So for him, it was this idea that, you know, freedom gives us the choice and how to act and behave. It elevates us over our base instincts um, of greed and hunger and fear. It always Freedom always comes with its twin, which is moral duty. And there's a great example, you know, very recently in the pandemic about this. So we have 
you know, because we have to make this decision. How can I live a meaningful life where I pursue my dreams, which is the, you know, free will and be morally a good person? So in the pandemic, millions of us gave up their basic rights and freedoms because they believed these draconian rules of not seeing our friends and family. That was for the greater good. But some of us didn't because they said our personal liberties are more important. And I, and I think it's this balancing act, this tension between the, the breathtaking possibilities of free will and the pitfalls of selfishness, which is a balancing act we still continue to this day. Mm. So, Andrea, it's, it's, it's the ich philosophy, the I philosophy, the me philosophy. I mean, it's inevitably, I would have thought, going to appeal more to extroverts. If you're being told it's your own individual, you know, it's your own self that creates reality. That I would have thought is a philosophy that would ap appeal more to someone who, as Victor was, was stomping around with his riding crop and boots. Would you say that's fair? I or don't not? agree with that. I think surely aren't you more likely to be, if you're an introvert, Tom, and you spend a lot of time on your, on your own thinking about yourself, aren't you more likely to be drawn to that philosophy, I would have said, than if you're an other-centered person? Well, so that ties in with another question, which is that... This is a time of titanic uh, deeds, particularly in France. And it's the age of Napoleon. Napoleon kind of, in a sense, is the exemplification of the ich philosophy, creating reality through the realization of his own self. But Germany is, is fragmented. And Jena, as you said, you know, the, the freedom in a way is also the index of its impotence. And isn't there also a sense in which it's important to someone like Fichte and then to the, the other philosophers who gather around him to make great claims for for this philosophy, because in a sense, they, you know, they're not uh, sailing to Egypt or storming across Europe or doing anything. They are sitting in lecture halls. Um, and in a sense, the, the, the kind of the stereotype of um, of the German in the in the late 18th century is almost the opposite of the one that, that kind of is given birth to as a result of the Prussians and then the Nazis, that the Germans in the 18th century are dreamers. And in a way, this is an attempt to, to kind of dignify that dreaming. Couldn't you say that if you were being very, very harsh, very unsympathetic? If you, if you want to see it like this, I would actually go back to the French Revolution because what happened in France, the French Revolution is such a massive, pivotal um, event that it affects almost everybody in Europe. But when the French revolutionaries declare that all men are equal they promise a social order that is built on the power of ideas and freedom. So, and I think that is the moment when philosophy leaves the you know, ivory tower of rarefied thought and, and arrives in the minds of ordinary people. So this is, this is a revolution that proves that ideas are stronger than any weapon or mites of kings and queens. And I think that gives the mind such a great power that I think we tend today, and I think it's the wrong way of seeing romanticism, we think of these kind of like forlorn, dreamy, broody kind of type of people. That's not what the first romantics were about at all. For them, this was a very, very complex, unwieldy and dynamic concept that has nothing to do with the kind of the lone figure standing in a moonlit kind of forest, kind of, you know, looking over the clouds or something like that. This is a, this was something where they said, Romantic poetry is a living organism and it transcended disciplines. And they put poetry in the ancient Greek 
meaning at its center, which meant productive and creative. So they wanted to romanticize the whole world. And that meant bringing together the arts and the sciences, humankind and nature. So it's it's something much more complicated. And what they do is they elevate imagination as the highest faculty of the mind. So imagination had been seen, you know, or had been kind of given a subordinate role in philosophy for centuries. It was kind of regarded with suspicion. It kind of like hit the um, it kind of obscured the truth. It was unreliable. Samuel Johnson called it a licentious um, faculty. And they, they came along and said, like, no, 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 no. Like imagination is how we understand the world. But that didn't mean that they turned against reason. They just added it. So what they said is like, we want to poeticize the sciences. Or Fried Friedrich Schlegel said, um, I want to make Euclid singable. So there's this sense of creating something much bigger. And it's, it's the later romantics who just messed it all up, basically. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, Andre, you, you, so you talk about romanticism. I think we should take a break now. And then when we come back, we should look at the, the man who, who first coins the word romantic in the sense that we use it today, uh, his wife, his brother, uh, and all kinds of shenanigans. So we will look at that after the break. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the origins of Romanticism and specifically the German Romantics for the town of Jena. And before the break, um, Andrea, Tom was promising that we would get into the origins of the term Romanticism. And it begins, I believe, with a, a poet and translator, August Wilhelm Schlegel. So would you like to tell us a bit about him? So it's August Wilhelm Schlegel and Friedrich Schlegel. So they're two brothers. Um, one, August Wilhelm Schlegel was, was always perfectly dressed and perfectly groomed, a bit pedantic. And his brother was this kind of like crazy hothead who called himself a dictator critic, which is a literary critic with a pen as sharp as the French guillotines. And they set out um, to attack the literary establishment. And they did that with a magazine, a literary magazine called the Athenaeum, um, a magazine which they said they wanted to be of sublime impertinence. So that was like the most important thing. And it is 
in the in the pages of the Athenaeum that they first used the term romantic in its new literary meaning. So forget Coleridge and the English romantics. The first time romantic has been used in this way was actually in Germany. So yeah, we, we acknowledge that. <laughs> they launched romanticism as an international movement. Um, and they were, so that's, that's their kind of like intellectual intention. And August Wilhelm Schlegel was also a brilliant translator who together with his wife translated 16 Shakespeare plays, uh, the first German verse translation, which to this day is the standard Edition And amazingly, his published lectures on Shakespeare, uh, which were very much informed by his discussion with his wife, then resurrected Shakespeare in England, believe it or not. So thank you, Germany. (laughs) William Wordsworth said that a German critic taught us correctly uh, how to think correctly about Shakespeare. So they are actually quite an important bunch of people. Because that's the joke, isn't it? That the uh, German version is very good and the English translation of it isn't bad as well. That's the... Oh. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I mean, I I really like, I mean, I live in England and have lived here for almost 30 years. I always read English stuff, but German Shakespeare performances are pretty good. I think I almost prefer them to the <laughs> okay. English one. Oh, I'm, I'm hanging myself that's, out that's of the window. That's absolutely fine. So, Andre, <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned Schlegel's wife. Yeah. Uh, who who is helped who is who is the co-translator on this and she is an extraordinary woman and in a way she seems to be the the, the beating heart of the soap opera the sitcom however you want to frame it i mean she's a remarkable figure isn't she so just yeah, tell us about so, her so let me introduce her properly with all her names she's caroline michaelis Böhmer schlegel schelling so she carries the name of her father and her three husbands and she is, as you said, she's at the heart of this story. She, she was born in 1763. She was the daughter of a very famous German scholar. She was raised on a diet on literature, poetry and politics. She was beautiful, educated, fiercely independently minded. She married young, was a widow by the age of 24, then hung out with the German revolutionaries was then imprisoned by the Prussians for being a sympathizer with the French Revolution. And then not only that, imprisoned, she discovered that she was pregnant after a one-night stand with an 18-year-old French soldier. So quite something at a time when it was scandalous behavior if you were just on your own in the room with a man. Then after her imprisonment, she kind of zigzagged through Germany, was treated as an outcast. And then August Wilhelm Schlegel came along. I mean, men just fell for her. So he was in love with her. He married her, gave her a new name, and with that, a new beginning, and took her to Jena in 1796, where she really became the heart of the Jena set and not the muse. She's not just the muse. She's much, yeah, much she's more important. participant. Yeah, she's, yeah. So, she cre- so she does the kind of more traditional thing where she creates the physical space for them, where they all meet and work together and party. But she's also a razor-sharp critic, who dissects poetry and plays and essays with deep, deep knowledge. And her husband and her friends begin to rely on her literary and analytical mind. She she is the editor of the Athenaeum, so she takes the role of the editor. She writes reviews uh, under her husband's name. I, I, I mean, many, many, many. And uh, and she translates together with with her husband, the 16 Shakespeare plays, which, of course, was never acknowledged. So her name is not on right. any of these books. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about that. So what are the possibilities for a highly educated, highly intelligent woman in Jena at the end of the 18th century? Does she have to do it all through sort of, as it were, using her husband as a vehicle? I mean, what do people think of such an articulate, emboldened woman? So 
it was difficult. So most women um, published either anonymously or under that name of their of their husbands. There were a few who did not, but I think Caroline chose purposefully not to put her name on there because she was really famous in German for being this revolutionary whore. So it would have been not a good, you know, strategy financially to do that. Um, But it, I mean, Schiller, for example, he had another magazine and he published quite a lot of um, female writers, but all of them anonymously. So most women would not put their name on there. It changed. I mean, it changes. There are a few who later um, do this, but it is, I mean, if there is a place in, in Germany, then it was Jena that you could do that. So Friedrich Schlegel, for example, his lover is the divorced um, Dorothea Feit. And she's a writer and she writes a novel, but she also publishes it under the name of her husband. It's a very, very common thing to do. So Friedrich Schlegel, younger brother of um, August Wilhelm Schlegel. Uh, and this is why the sitcom element starts to come in. So inevitably he meets Caroline and he, he I mean, he quite fancies her, doesn't he? Yeah, so... So he he's younger. I mean, she really has a thing for younger men. There's a there's a there's a moment when she she has a an affair with the twelve year old younger Friedrich Schelling. I'm sorry that everybody's called Friedrich and then at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's really there's confusing. A two two Schlegels. No, three Schlegels. Are there? And then there's Friedrich a Schiller and a Schelling. Schiller and a Schelling. <laughs> yeah. Yes, like it's very complicated. Um, so Friedrich Schlegel falls in love with Caroline. But then kind of steps back because his brother had first fallen in love. Yeah, with so it's all these kind of siblings falling in love with, you know, the same person and stuff. There seems to be a, a running theme. Well, I would say, I mean, so the Schlegel brothers and Caroline and Dorothea Feit, who's the lover of Friedrich Schlegel, they all live together in one house. And I would really call that the first German commune. I mean, that's where it all started, basically. Right. Because they all, you know, they all live together. And Friedrich Schlegel has, he writes these um fragments where he says like you know how could anyone have anything against like a marriage a quatre so it's it's a very i mean i've not found any letters that indicate that they had like a foursome or something like that but you have august wilhelm and caroline being married in their open marriage um and then a few years in she falls in love with the 12 year old um 12 year younger Friedrich Schelling. I was going to say, he's not 12 years old. That would be very no, no, precocious. No. He's tw- he was 12 <laughs> years younger. Well, you know, Novalis fell in love with a 12-year-old. Well, we'll come to Novalis in a minute. And then um, and then August Wilhelm doesn't really mind because he has lovers also. So it's all, you know, very open and very casual. Right. So, so let's just come to Novalis, who is the archetype of the Romantic poet, because he dies young. Uh, he's a friend of, of Friedrich Schlegel. In fact, he dies. Friedrich Schlegel is by his bedside. Um, and he becomes the archetype of the, you know, the, 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 the beautiful angel, all that kind of stuff. Um, but actually, he, in some ways, he's a more conventional figure than any of these kind of philosophers hanging out in their commune, isn't he? Because he's, um, he's basically running a load of mines. Yeah, he, well, he's, he's, from, he's, he's the only one who's an aristocrat. So he comes from a privileged background, but the family doesn't have a lot of money. They just have basically their lineage. And so he runs the the mines um the with together with his father the salt mines so he is the only one actually who has a proper job um compared to the others um and he he so he studies in in jena and then in leipzig where he meets friedrich schlegel they become like best friends and then um novalis is pretty obsessed with fichte's um philosophy of the self 
Yes, because you say that, that he wanted to make his body disappear and become spirit alone. So, I mean, that's, I mean, what exactly does he mean by that? What's what, what? No one really knows. But he wants to basically transcend the kind of boundaries between, you know, the body and the mind. Or the lewdness. But what is, but, but, but what is interesting is, so he falls in love with the 12-year-old Sophie von Kuhn which kind of makes for slightly uncomfortable reading now. And then she dies after some terrible you know, surgery when she's 15. And Novalis then takes Fichte's philosophy and gives it his very kind of own twist because he says, well, if the ich, if the self can basically create the external world and can control everything, I'm going to kill myself because I want to be reunited with Sophie, but I'm not going to do it with a gun or rope. I'm going to do it with sheer willpower. Um, just in, he believes that, you know, if our mind can move our body, surely, you know, our mind should be able to like regrow an amputated arm and kill us. So he is, it's a little bit bonkers, mm -hmm. but, um, it leads him to write, I think, some of the most exquisite poetry that the young romantics have produced, which is hymns to the night. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cycle of six poems and it's just absolutely stunning and he plays with with darkness and with death in a completely new way so darkness becomes something positive you know before darkness has always been something kind of scary but he and i think he uses also his experiences from the mines because in the mines you go into the bowels of the earth and so the darkness becomes this metaphor for going into use into yourself which you know is to this day a metaphor we use for that but, but but also he i mean it's interesting because he um presumably in the minds i mean he's he's seeing wheels turn and all this kind of stuff but he has this um this complaint that nature basically by enlightenment philosophy has been reduced to a monotonous machine turning the eternally creative music of the universe into the monotonous clatter of a gigantic mill wheel and that is a, a theme that is so important to the Romantics, isn't it? This rejection of the Enlightenment idea that everything is just cogs and wheels turning. Exactly. So they basically turn against the, these kind of mechanical models of the world. So you have, for example, Descartes, who says, who declares all animals to be machines. Um, so they, and then you have, you obviously you have an increasing productivity. You have the Enlightenment, you have steam engines, you have scientists who kind of peer through microscopes to understand the minutiae of life. You have them looking into the heavens to understand our, our place in the universe. You have physicians inoculating against smallpox. So the world becomes this, this, you know, measurable, repeatable, classifiable kind of machine. And that's what the romantics turn against. They, they don't turn against reason but what they want is they want to poeticize the sciences they want to stop this what they say this mill wheel which kind of grounds itself to dust because they believe that the enlightenment has has stripped the reality of the awe and wonder for nature so what they really believe is that the external world has become something that has to be observed from a so-called objective perspective and they say, and this is where Friedrich Schelling comes in with his philosophy, they basically say the self and nature is one. It's a unity. Everything is one big living organism. So if we are part of nature, if the system of the, of nature and the system of the mind is the same thing, it means that when we walk through nature, when we, you know, go for, you know, walk through a forest or scramble up a mountain, 
it's always a journey of self-discovery. So this philosophy of oneness, that becomes the heartbeat of romanticism. That is at the kind of the, the neck, at the nexus of everything. And that is what then becomes so important for the English romantics and for the American transcendentalists. The, the irony, though, is that, of course, they're talking all the time about unity, but they are incredibly divided among themselves, aren't they? I mean, you, you call them the Yena set, but, I mean, there's nobody they hate more than one another. Or, or am I being? Am I, uh, <laughs> well, imagine this: you have a bunch of rebellious young women and men who live together in a small town, and they have declared themselves as the supreme ruler of the world. You're kind of bound to end up with inflated egos, self-absorption, and fight, and it's exactly what happens. They end up in what Dorothea Veidt calls a republic of despots. That's what they become. Right. Yeah, and they. But it's also, I mean, the 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 arguments that they have are not merely arguments on the page, are they? So there, there's a scene in which. Um, students are throwing bricks through Fichte's windows because they um, they they despise his ideas so much. And, and Goethe says, you know, this is a very disagreeable way for Fichte to have the existence of a non-ich proven to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so these are things that people are actually, I mean, maybe fighting physically fighting is too strong an expression, but they are prepared to at least, not, if not to take up arms, then to take up bricks about. Yes. So, I mean, in the beginning, they kind of agree, but they're obviously fighting their literary establishment and, um, and the literary establishment hates them. I mean, like hates them. They like, write satires about them. They, um, write really, really savage reviews about them. So, but they, it's almost like they're just fired up by this. They just love it because, and there, there's a wonderful quote where, where August Wilhelm Schlegel kind of says, like, they hate us great. They curse us even better. They, you know, they want, they yeah. call us blasphemers even fab, more fabulous. So they quite like the, um, the fight. Um, but then in the end, they turn against each other. Yeah. It, it starts to kind of break up, doesn't it? Because Fichte flounces off. I mean, he basically says, back me or I'm leaving. And they no, no, no. It's, and... it's the beginning of the breakup is really when um, when Friedrich Schlegel very stupidly writes a savage or several savage reviews about Schiller's works, including um, criticizing Schiller's magazine Horen um, for having too many translations in there. But his brother himself wrote these, tra- you know, these translations. So <laughs> Fichte in the end, uh, Schiller in the end, just goes like, "Oh my God, I just can't deal with these guys anymore," and he he basically. Um, breaks off all contact and this is this is really when it starts because Schiller had originally brought them to Yale. Right. So this is and then and then you have Schiller who calls Caroline Madame Lucifer and Wilhelm von Humboldt's wife calls her a snake and it just goes on and on and on. And then well, women women to, tend to be less keen on Carolina than men. Would it yes. would it be fair to say? That's uh, fa- definitely fair to say. And I think that that was because she would never she was never willing to play the kind of demure domestic housewife. She was, you know, she was always like, "I'm going to hang out with a with a man here. I'm not going to hang out." Yeah. Um, one of my favorite bits in the whole book was when, um, I, I, and as you say, they're always kind of flouncing out and having bust ups and writing negative reviews of each other in magazines and things. And um, Schlegel announces that he's leaving one of them uh, because Dominic, it was simply too embarrassing to write alongside so many inferior contributors. <laughs> oh my so, word, Tom. So there's a. There's something perhaps for you to bear in mind. Um, what with my podcast co-presenter? Are you no, serious? I was thinking. I was thinking more of uh, your no. many uh, media. You're thinking about other media outlets. I am oh, thinking about other media talk. outlets. Um, so 
But what about hold on? What, what about what about Schelling when he gets a bad review, suggesting to the editors that the only person who could write a review about his own book is himself? We all think that, though, don't we? I mean, <laughs> so 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 Schiller has has broken up with the the kind of younger set. Fichte storms off and goes off, has to go off to Berlin. Um, and then you mentioned Schelling, and Schelling ends up married to Carolina. So th- that presumably also isn't. I mean, it's not hugely helpful to the the group harmonies, is it? No, no, that, that is one of the other reasons why it kind of all breaks apart, but not so much, not because of August Wilhelm, who's married to Carolina. It's more because of Friedrich Schlegel, who used to be in love with Carolina, then gave her up for his brother. And then she just, you know, flounces off with the next one. So that's the moment when he, I think, gets so pissed off that he's just, you know, all guards go down and he and Dorothea just write so badly about Caroline, especially Dorothea, actually. Dorothea was, you know, she was, she was not very beautiful. And she's she the daughter was, of uh, Moses Mendelssohn, right? Yeah, one of the greatest yeah. German Enlightenment philosophers. Um, but she is, she feels always a little bit, I think, overshadowed by Caroline because everybody just adored her. So the moment her lover turns against Carolina. Dorothea just writes an avalanche of horrible letters. I mean, when you read them, you think that, oh, my God. And Carolina doesn't know that at the time. She lives together with her and she's, you know, perfectly <laughs> nice and friendly to her. So there's a lot of backstabbing going on Brilliant at stuff. the end. <laughs> and there's one, other, there's one other figure that we haven't mentioned. I, again, I guess a household name, and that is Hegel, the philosopher Hegel. So he's not really part of the set, but he arrives towards the end, doesn't he? When mm-hmm. I suppose they're when they're in them their falling out phase, and when the glory days are slightly past. So, is, do you see Hegel? I mean, so in many ways, that I suppose you could say the ancestor of, of of Marx and of so many kind of modern ideas. Do you see Hegel as part of this world as well? Well, Hegel is basically he comes in as you said quite towards the end, and it's like a you know he's he is he's this. I mean, now he's this kind of towering figure, but then he's very much, so he's, he had studied together with, um, with Schelling and Schelling is the superstar. I mean, Schelling is made the youngest professor at the age of 23 in Jena. And when, when Hegel arrives, he, you know, it takes him like two or three years to make the decision to arrive. He, he's like, he ponders over everything. So as fast and restless as the others are, he's like very slow, kind of plodding along. And by the time he finally decides to come to Jena, the kind of whirlwind is kind of always blown out. But he comes to Jena to be with Schelling because, you know, Schelling is the kind of superstar. And then what happens is as he, as he is in Jena, his, he moves away bit by bit from Schelling. So Schelling leaves in 1803. And after that, Hegel really begins his own journey. And he turns against, um, in his philosophy, he really turns against all this kind of craziness and kind of um, the, the, a philosophy which yeah. which loves yeah. art and imagination. And he says like, no, no, no. And he hates nature, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, go, he, go, he goes to Switzerland and everybody's like in awe of the Alps and he's like yeah. more interested in this, the technique of Swiss cheese making. <laughs> but, he, but what he says, is he basically says, like, hold on, philosophy is a serious business. So let's strip all that kind of art and imagination out of it again. So he is... He kind of ends it really, and and there's this this amazing scene, you know, where you sometimes think, you know, facts are just so much better than fiction. You couldn't invent it. So there, there's the Battle of Jena when when 
Napoleon arrives with his 150,000 French soldiers and they descend onto Jena and they destroy the kind of almighty Prussian army. And on the day, and the day before the battle, you have, um, Hegel with the manuscript of the phenomenology, I can never get this word out, the <laughs> phenomenology of spirit. It's his only copy and he puts it on the oh. stagecoach out of Jena and then he sees Napoleon on a horse and calls him like the world soul. So it's this extraordinary moment, which is really, that's the end of Jena because after the battle, uh, Jena is completely destroyed. The students all left, leave and... um so, but Hegel is there at the very last moment, like handing over his manuscript. So it's almost like a sort of harbinger of the the herald of the nineteenth century at the end of the eighteenth, I guess, isn't he? I mean, uh, sort of pointing ahead to the great ideologies that will dominate, you know, the future. It's an amazing moment, actually, because Napoleon himself is a figure like that, isn't he? So Napoleon himself is a sort of enlightenment figure who is anticipating but also a romantic figure that yeah but who's anticipating yeah. the dictators and the the you know the the the, the monstrous ambitions and, and, of the 20th century and, but hegel sees him as the, you know this is basically where this progression from like feudal system to democracies and freedom he, he's he's basically the end of history for for hegel that when he sees him he you know that because we think, oh, the French are, you know, in Jena and the Germans don't really want this, but there are quite a lot of Germans who want the French to come because they want to be liberated. They want to live in a republic and not in, you know, in uh, absolutism. So Hegel, although his life is threatened, he wants the French to win. But uh, Andre, so the Jena set basically ends with they all have bust ups, they all run off and marry with one another and, and, and end up hating each other. And then Napoleon comes up and basically kind of trashes the whole thing. One other thing that I, I, I picked up from the book is that a lot of these figures end up veering quite sharply to the right. So they, mm -hmm. they tend to become Catholic. They tend to become quite politically reactionary. And do you think that th that, that kind of parabola of kind of burning radicalism fading out, veering back into, in, in, into reaction, do you think that, that is that setting a kind of prototype that will be followed through the 19th, 20th century? I don't know. I I think it is something that happens all the time. You know? Like the big revolutionaries often become, you know, dictators and, you know, nationalistic and stuff like that. So I don't know if they're the prototype. I think it's maybe it's human nature. Yeah, maybe, like maybe, maybe. I fear. Just to, just to sum up, give us a sense of, of just how significant this is, because we've about half the podcast has been on, on the philosophy, but the other half, I'm afraid it's entirely my fault, has been all about the you yeah. can see where Tom's interests yeah, lie, yeah. Andrew. So, so, so just just for, just for people listeners who may not um, be absolutely au fait with with idealist philosophy, just give us a sense of how important this is, not just for philosophy but for the whole sweep of European history. I think basically they changed our world. Um, it's as simple as that. They they um, they put the self at center stage and has it has stayed there for the better of the worst forever and. Um, we have, from the moment they put the self at the center, we had, or people had to deal with the, with the perils of this kind of newly emboldened ish or self. And it is, it is the same kind of tiptoeing we still have to do today. And, and I think it is, it has made us who we are. I mean, this is, it starts with the enlightenment, but this is the moment where this is why we are a selfish society today. Full mm. stop. I think that's, as simple as that. It doesn't mean that they intended it to be like this, but I also think that 
in a way, like right now in this moment um, where we live today, you know, we have for long thought that we are free to think, to form our opinions, to control our lives. But right now, all of that, this very core of our society is very much under threat, be it through Russia's cyber interference in democratic elections, be it through the, you know, fake tsunami, uh, the, the, the tsunami of fake news on social media or the kind of right wing populist um, political movements. Our, you know, our democracies are hollowed out right now through liars and through despots. So I think right now it's such an important moment to remind ourselves why, you know, when did we become free? Where does this hard-won self-determination came from? So in a way, the Yena set has given, you know, has given us wing, our mind wings, but how we use them, that's entirely up for us. And I'm interested in history and I mean, you will probably definitely agree with me. It's not like a dusty old pile of ideas. It's, you know, I'm interested in history because I want to know why we are who we are. So with my Humboldt book, for example, I looked at the relationship between humankind and nature to understand why we're destroying our planet. And with this book, I really wanted to know now, why are we such a selfish society? Where does this come from? Where did it go wrong? And, um, but also to remind myself that there, are, that, you know, to be selfish, in you know in the yena set meaning is something good you know it it means that you are trying to make this you know to make society a better society it doesn't mean to be a narcissistic asshole well <laughs> well you definitely won't have people like that on our show <laughs> <laughs> andrea thanks so much um magnificent rebels this is my very last sentence on this podcast. Yeah, narcissistic assholes. <laughs> if you want more about narcissistic assholes, you can read Andrea's book, Magnificent <laughs> Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. And they're not just narcissistic assholes, are they? They are not at all. Very much more than that. Uh, and it's a, it's a fantastically entertaining book. Um, and I completely take back all the reservations that I expressed when you first said that this is what you were writing. It's an absolute <laughs> triumph. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?